0: who was standing out in front of a store begging. It was a cold winter evening, not long before Christmas. The little boy's clothes were dirty and ragged. His shoes had holes in them. There was a woman passing by Who saw the little boy? And she could see the longing in his eyes. So she took him by the hand and she led him into the store. And there she bought him some new shoes and a warm winter coat and some warm clothing. They came back outside onto the street and the woman said to the child, now you can go home and I hope you have a very happy holiday. The little boy looked up at her and he asked her the question, male, are you God? She smiled down at him, and she said, no, I'm just one of his children. The little boy then said, well, I knew you had to be some relation. I'm beginning the sermon today with that little story because of the the accurate, correct understanding of that very generous woman. She had the correct understanding that we all need to have. No, I am not God. I'm just one of his children. Now you might think that would be obvious and that nobody would ever, ever think otherwise. But you know, that's not always the case. We sometimes hear about people having a a God complex. And I looked up the definition of that, and that's defined as a mental disorder characterized by an inflated sense of self-importance, entitlement, and a deep need for admiration. It's an obsessive preoccupation with status and power. Sometimes there are people in psychiatric facilities that suffer from disorders of that kind. And they really and truly believe that they are something like God. But you know, they're not the only ones that can develop that problem. Since the creation in the book of Genesis, Satan has been tempting mankind with the possibility that we too, we too can be something like God. Look at what happened in Genesis 3, 2 through 5. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Adam and Eve fell into Satan's trap. Countless others throughout time have done the same thing. Satan whispers in our ears, why serve Jehovah God? when you can be the Lord and master of your own life. After all, you have everything you need to be your own God, your own master. And you know every single day, every single day we're all faced with the same choice as Adam and Eve. Do we worship, follow, and obey the one true God? Or do we worship ourselves and follow our own desires? Do we believe that we can somehow come up with a better life for ourselves than God the Creator? could give us the truth that all of us must believe and embrace and obey is that there is but one true God and we are not him. Today there are a great many things in our lives that compete for first place in our hearts. Things that are nothing wrong with in and of themselves. And in this series of lessons that I've been doing on counterfeit gods, We've studied about just a few of them, just a few of them on the screen. God is not going to share the throne of our hearts with all the many pleasures of this life that we may enjoy, including all of our our different kinds of entertainment today, that even our food, that we've studied lessons on. God is not going to share the throne of our hearts with the things of this world that we believe will give us power, like our worldly success and our money. And God is not going to share the throne of our hearts even with people that we highly value and deeply love, even family, that we talked about in the last lesson. And so today, there's one more counterfeit God, there's one more little G God in this series that we're going to study. And it belongs right here in the temple of love along with family. And it's the God of me. The God of me. Like all the others in this series, the God of me is a false God, an idol, that we can allow to take the place of the one true God, Jehovah God. And when that happens, you know what that's called. That's called idolatry. It's not a coincidence that we're studying this counterfeit God, the God of me, That's the last sermon in this series. You may or may not be tempted by the other little g-gods that we've studied so far. But I guarantee you that all of us, every single one of us, will likely have to wrestle with the God of me at some point in our lives. And it may be every single day. And the really dangerous part about the God of me is that he is able to hide himself so well, so deceitfully, that we may not even recognize him. Because of the deception of Satan, we might not even recognize and realize that we are not truly serving God the Father, but we are indeed serving God the God of me. When the God of me and God the Father happen to be in agreement, we might not even realize and recognize that we're serving one and not the other. But it's when the two are not in agreement that we might be able to see and recognize Which one is really and truly in control of our lives? So what are some of the symptoms that might help us to realize and recognize that the little G God of me has taken over the throne of our hearts? What are some of the symptoms? Well, there are at least four symptoms, probably more, that can show up if we're allowing the God of me to be in charge. And the first symptom is pride. And what we're really talking about here is a a lack of humility, a lack of humility. You know, the Bible has a lot to say to us on the subject of pride. The word pride is found 51 times in the Bible. And in almost every case, and I actually took the time to look up those 51 times, in almost every case, it's referred to in a negative way as a sin in the sight of God. You know, pride was the trap that Eve and then Adam fell into in the Garden of Eden that we already mentioned. Satan appealed to their pride. The God of me encourages us to put our trust in our own thinking, our own judgment. God of me says to us that I'm always right. My way is the best way. God of me says to us that we are better and we know better than other people. But the really scary part is that the God of me can convince us that we know better than God himself. The second symptom is actually, you might say, an outward manifestation of the first one, pride. And it's boasting. And like the symptom of pride, the Bible has a lot to say about boasting. The word boast or a form of it is found 68 times in the Bible. And just like the word pride, in almost every case, it's referred to in a negative way as a sin. The God of me says to us that prideful boasting about ourselves and our accomplishments is a good way to boost our ego, make us feel good. But you know, God's word says just the opposite to us. In many, many passages such as Proverbs 27 verse two, let another man praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. A third symptom that shows up when the God of me is in charge is insecurity. You know, people who are very prideful and boastful are often actually insecure down deep in their hearts. And so they try to compensate for that by by their prideful boasting. God of me is preoccupied with what others think about me or about you. Because the God of me is on the throne of our hearts. And when that happens, then everything is about me. And the God of me is terrified of failure because failure might show others that We're not as great as we're advertised to be. And then a fourth symptom that may be present if the God of me is in charge is resisting authority. Do you ever struggle with submission and authority? If so then maybe the God of me is on the throne of your life. I want us to look right here at a very interesting part of Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28. Verses 1 and 2 say this. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God, And in the next verses, God goes on to say that the prince of Tyre was indeed wise and that his wisdom had made him wealthy and successful. But because he had become proud and had thought of himself as a god, the one true God would punish him through the swords of foreigners and bring about his death. Look at verses 9 and 10. God said to him, Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? Though you are but a man and no God. In the hands of those who slay you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners. For I have spoken declares the Lord God. And then in the verses that follow, Ezekiel is told to give a lamentation over the prince of Tyre. And in that lament, God talks about how he had created a being full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. And that being was anointed as a guardian cherub on the mountain of God. But then that being's heart became proud because of his beauty. And he became corrupted in his thinking. And in verse 16, God says, So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. Now, here's my point. All of that sounds a whole lot like a description of Satan's corruption and fall from heaven. Satan is a created being. But he began to think of himself as being as great or greater than the creator, God himself. You see, what happened to the Prince of Tyre and what happened to Satan is also what can happen in our own hearts when we serve the God of me. The human heart is an idol factory, we could say, that mass produces idols, including the God of me. But as we've already said in this series, idols cannot be just removed or kicked out. They have to be replaced. They have to be replaced. Something else must be put in their place. So what must the idols be replaced by? Well, the answer is by Jehovah God himself. Right here I want us to take a look at two Bible accounts of people who finally discovered in their lives that God was all they needed. And they were therefore able to remove the false gods the counterfeit gods from their lives. One account is in the Old Testament, the other one is in the New. First account is the story of Jacob. As you may remember for all of Jacob's life, he had been competing with and, and wrestling, you might say, in some way with his twin brother Esau even in their mother's womb. Genesis 25 says that Jacob and Esau struggled together within her. As they grew up, Jacob competed with Esau for the favor and love of their father Isaac and for the honor and leadership of their family. Now, Their father, Isaac, constantly favored Esau over Jacob because Esau liked to hunt. And their mother, Rebekah, favored Jacob. You know, playing favorites does nothing but cause problems when it happens in the home. Play in favorites does nothing but cause problems when it happens in the workplace. And yes, play in favorites does nothing but cause problems when it happens in the church. So finally the day came when the Father Isaac was to give Esau the all-important blessing that went along with his birthright as the firstborn son. But with the help of his mother Rebecca, and with her planning, Jacob disguised himself as Esau. And he tricked his nearly blind, almost blind father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing instead of Esau. Well, when Esau found out what had happened, he vowed to kill Jacob. So Jacob ran for his life. Jacob went to an area called Haran, where his mother was from. And he ended up working for his uncle Laban for the right to marry Laban's beautiful younger daughter named Rachel. Jacob worked seven years for Laban in return for Rachel's hand in marriage. But then he was tricked into marrying Laban's older daughter, Leah, who by tradition was expected to be married first. He then had to work another seven years for Rachel, the younger daughter. So Jacob's life, we might say, was one long wrestling match to get the blessings he wanted. He wrestled with Esau to get the blessing from his father's lips. He wrestled with Laban to find the blessing in life with Rachel. But after all of that, he was still needy. He was still empty inside. You know, Jacob's relationships with his own family were often rough and difficult. His idolatry and his favoritism of Rachel and her children poisoned the lives of Leah And her children. In Genesis chapter 30, we read that Jacob deceived Laban over a a livestock agreement. And with a huge herd of livestock and his family and Toll along with him, Jacob ran from the region of his father-in-law Laban. He ran off. And in chapter 31, Jacob headed back home to face his brother Esau. Well, when Jacob heard that Esau was on his way to meet him with an army of 400 men, he was scared. And he spent the night alone with God. And all of that brings us to what happens in Genesis chapter 32. 32. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. So who was that mysterious person, that mysterious figure, that Jacob wrestled with that night? Well, Hosea 12 verse 4 tells us that it was an angel of God. When Jacob realized that the man was sent from God, he would not let go until God blessed him. You know, in that moment, we might imagine Jacob thinking to himself, here's what I've been looking for all my life, the blessing of God. I look forward in the approval of my father. I look forward in the beauty and love of Rachel. But all the time, all that time, the thing that I needed the most was God himself. Now, I won't let you go until you bless me. Nothing else matters. And the text says that God blessed Jacob there that night. There's nothing greater in our lives than the blessing of God as his child. Jacob walked away from that encounter as someone permanently crippled and yet permanently changed for the better. You know, Jacob had never been a person with high moral values. As we've already seen, he had often acted selfishly, and deceitfully but then he was blessed by God we can rest assured today that by God's forgiveness and by his grace he can bless us too here's a point that I hope you'll remember The blessing of a right relationship with God is the only remedy against idolatry. Only when we know the blessing of having a right relationship with God can we realize how unnecessary are idols and counterfeit God. And like in the case of Jacob, we sometimes find that out only after a life of looking for blessings in the wrong places. Here's the second account of someone who finally discovered that God was all they needed. And it's the story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. In John 4, 3 and 4, the text says that Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. But you know, if you look at a map of Israel during the time of Christ, there were ways to travel from Judea to Galilee and go around Samaria. And most of the Jews of that time did exactly that, to stay out of Samaria, because of the bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. But John says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. So why? What was he talking about? Well, because there was a woman there in Samaria that Jesus, in his omniscience, wanted to have an encounter with. There was a woman there who had been desperately searching for something or someone to put her hope in. But time and time again, her search had ended in disappointment. So when Jesus arrived in Samaria, he came to a certain well called Jacob's Well at around noon. Noon was the part of the day when it got hotter, the heat rose. And Jesus, no doubt, was very tired from the journey, tired and thirsty. So he sat down at the well to rest and to wait for somebody to come along with a bucket to draw water. The well was likely very deep, and he had no way to draw water from it. So when the Samaritan woman arrived at the well, Jesus asked her if she would give him a drink. And she was very surprised when he asked her that. And she said in John 4, verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? In the next verse, Jesus said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus then explained to her that if she drinks of his water, she would never be thirsty again. In other words, he has something to offer her that will satisfy her thirst forever. Now, obviously, she was thinking about the physical but Jesus was talking about the spiritual. Well, she had nothing to lose, so she asked for his water. Jesus told her to go home and get her husband and come back together. And she told him that she had no husband. And then Jesus said... And we could imagine him saying this gently and, and, and with compassion. Jesus said, "You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. in that you spoke truly." Well the woman then realized that Jesus must be some kind of prophet. And she tried to take the attention off herself by changing the subject. So after a little back and forth talking, she tried to end the conversation by saying in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. To which Jesus said in the next verse, I who speak to you am he. You know, that's the only time, that's the only time that we know of in Jesus' entire ministry when he voluntarily revealed who he was. So can you imagine what she must have thought and felt at that moment? the happiness and the fulfillment that she had been looking for in five husbands had never lasted very long. But when Jesus revealed to her who he was, something within her knew that he was what her soul had been longing for. What Jesus promised to that Samaritan woman is a promise that he offers to every single one of us. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You see, counterfeit gods are broken cisterns. But Jesus is the fountain of everlasting life. In the text in Jeremiah chapter 2 that Mike read, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, making the case against his own people. Therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory, for what does not profit? Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves cisterns. Look at it. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. God was saying to them that when they turn to counterfeit gods, false gods, idols, it's like digging their own broken cisterns to drink out of instead of drinking out of a spring of fresh, living water flowing right beside it. In Bible times, a cistern was an artificial reservoir that was dug down into the earth or carved into rock. And the purpose of it was to collect and store water. Israel has a long, dry season with not many natural springs. So catching the winter rains in cisterns was very important. So during Jeremiah's time, cisterns, like this one in the picture, were an important part of life in in everyday Israel. People would dig cisterns and line them with brick and plaster, to collect and hold the rainwater when it came. But those cisterns were always springing leaks, losing water. And even if they didn't leak, the water would often become stagnant. The supply would run out. You see, that illustration that we read in Jeremiah 2 that God used in his complaint against his people, that would have clearly made his point to the people of that day. No one would ever choose a cistern as their water source when a spring of crystal clear fresh water was available. And you know that shows the folly of idolatry. Why choose an idol? A counterfeit God that isn't real when you can have the one true God. Today in 2022 we choose broken cisterns with stagnant water Instead of the spring of fresh living water, we choose that. When we look to something or someone to do for us what only God is able to do. When we turn to something or someone other than Jehovah God, We'll never be satisfied, we'll always be empty and thirsty. Why put our hope, why put our hope in something or someone that doesn't hold water like a broken sister? So what are you thirsty for today? Are you stressed out and thirsty for peace in your life? Are you lonely and thirsty for love? Are you bored and thirsty for purpose? Are you thirsty for acceptance, for importance? Or are you just thirsty for something more? something better. The counterfeit gods that we've studied in this series, including this one today, the God of me, they all tempt us to chase after what they offer. But when we do that, when we do that, we're left more thirsty than ever. All counterfeit gods are like broken cisterns. But Jesus is the spring of living water, the fountain of everlasting life. Jesus invites us to drink from him. And when we do, when we do, if we obey him and we're faithful to him, then we'll never be thirsty again. Jesus is the fountain of living water that never runs out. And he always satisfies. When we keep Jesus on the throne of our hearts, then we can defeat the counterfeit gods like the ones that we've studied, and many, many others that battle for our hearts and lives today. So today, if you're not a member of God's family, the church, and Jesus invites you to come to him, come to him and drink of his water, believing that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, And then turning away from your sins in repentance. Confessing the name of Christ, making him the Lord of your life. Being immersed then in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. And then living a new and a faithful life in Christ. If you need to respond to the invitation today in any way this morning, to confess sin in a public way or to ask for the prayers of the church or to obey the gospel and become a Christian. Christ invites you to come today. As together we stand and sin.